This episode of the MGMA podcast is brought to you by Walmart Business. It's the Walmart you love, now for business. Get everything you need for your staff and patients in one place. Enjoy big savings on health and safety products, cleaning supplies, over-the-counter medications, and much more. And don't forget the break room snacks. Create a free account today and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. Welcome to this special episode of Insights. I'm Daniel Williams. MGMA is committed to providing expert resources, solutions, and support to medical professionals as they deal with COVID-19. Experts agree that one of the most promising ways to keep patients and staff safe is through telehealth. To help explain the recent policy changes, we're joined today by Anders Gilberg, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs with MGMA. Anders, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to uh, happy to talk with you today. Now, with the COVID-19 outbreak, the healthcare community is, is it's really in a battle right now to serve its patients, to keep those patients and their staff as safe as possible. Um, one of the ways that we're looking at doing that is through telehealth. We've had some changes lately. Tell us about those policy changes from CMS. Yeah, um, it, it, it's a real priority for MGMA, and it's something that our members have been asking for, and uh, we were successful at um, advocating for. So let me kind of update you on where, where things stand. So uh, last week, emergency legislation was passed by Congress, and so um, it was part of a larger package, and it was to bolster the government's response to the coronavirus. And so, as you may recall, that coupled with the president's emergency declaration, what that did was it allowed the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and HHS to expand access to care for Medicare patients. Um, and one of those key components is telehealth. I mean, I don't have to tell anybody here that, you know, we don't want um, healthy especially elderly patients coming into the doctor's office um, where they might be exposed to um, someone with the virus um, at a time um, when we can leverage technology and to provide the same services. And so our members and medical practices around the country are really interested in, in, in providing this service, but um, it was only recently then through the um, actions of Congress and then the implementation through CMS that has allowed this. Okay. Now, how does that change what had already been in place? What are the biggest changes there? Yeah, so before the waivers have been, had been um, put in place, um, telehealth benefit in Medicare had been relatively a limited benefit, uh, so only limited to, for example, rural areas. And, um, and with the waivers, that expanded it greatly. And so when we say waivers, what we're waiving are things like um, waiving geographic restrictions. So now patients can receive telehealth services in non-rural areas. We're waiving what are what were referred to as originating site requirements. So patients can receive telehealth services in their home. There used to be limitations on that um, prior to implementation uh, by Congress and then um, details that were uh, disseminating disseminated by CMS only yesterday. Uh, importantly, you know, not everybody has the 
up-to-date technology that maybe like a large integrated delivery system might have. And so um, other changes would include the use of smartphones. So smartphones can now be used and apps such as FaceTime, Skype, Zoom can be used. Um, something that I think that we will continue to advocate on is that um, currently um, just telephone services are not included in this. And I think that, you know, you definitely have situations, especially among the el elderly that may not have experience with apps such as uh, uh, these and wants to just talk to a phone, uh, uh, I'm sorry, their physician on the phone and physician practices um, be reimbursed for that. So I think that that will be the second stage in our advocacy efforts to see if we can get that lifted as well. So, but right now I think it's very positive. We've uh, gotten the geographic restrictions lifted. We've gotten the site originating, originating site restrictions uh, lifted. We've gotten this uh, smartphone um, use uh, permitted and um, these apps are now permitted. So I think that that will help access, especially when you have patients with multiple chronic conditions um, that may need to see a physician in this outbreak. And then obviously you have instances where you may have a patient who has symptoms, but maybe they're not critical, where then they can use the technology to um, talk to a provider and to get an assessment at, you know, with a safe distance and, and in the comfort of their own home. So it's very positive and it allows, it's a, it's a very, it's one of those things where, um, uh, you know, frankly, it should have been done long ago, but in this crisis, um, we're happy that it's been implemented now. Right. Now, looking at this, is are these policy changes only re related to COVID-19 patients or what other services are covered as well? Yeah, and so one of the concerns was that it would be only limited to COVID-19 patients. But as I was saying, you know, you have, especially among the elderly population, you know, life goes on and, and patients have... Um, you know, multiple conditions that need managing, you know, if you have heart disease or um, COPD, you know, you might be at a high risk anyway for COVID-19, but those services need to be um, managed and, and maintained from a clinical perspective. And so the good news is, is that the changes would allow reimbursement for any telehealth covered codes. And even if they are unrelated to COVID-19. And um, again, just underscoring that this will keep patients out of the office for non-urgent visits, as well as to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Yeah, um, let's talk about the time frame then, because is this going to is this is this the new normal for telehealth and telemedicine, or is there truly a time frame for these waivers? Well, the way it was implemented was it was coupled with the declaration of a public health emergency. And so it, at this point, the, the duration of the waivers would be um, aligned with the duration of the public health emergency declaration by the government. And if that ever is hopefully um, withdrawn, then the waivers would be um, withdrawn as well. Okay. So let, let's dig a little deeper into that then. What are the, the telehealth regulations? They're going to roll back to the way they've been after that, after that date, or how is that going to look? Yeah, as of, uh, as of now, yes. But, you know, our hope is that this opens the door for increased flexibility in the future. Uh, so it, 
long before we knew anything about COVID-19, MGMA has supported something called the Connect for Health Act. Members and anyone really can go on our website into our Congressional Action Center. This is not the COVID-19 center, but like our grassroots center where we talk about other policy issues. But you'll see there that we've been running a grassroots campaign prior to even this emergency um, to support this legislation called the Connect for Health Act. And what it would do is offer many of the same flexibilities like lifting geographic and technological restrictions on medical practices and you know patients so they can receive these um, these services yeah one of the things that's troubling here is that most of the patients or many of the patients who are most in need of telehealth services are the elderly they may have pre-existing conditions comorbidity they may have things that they need checked on you know daily weekly um, so is there any educational training needed to use this technology? What does the CMS suggest here? Yeah, so CMS has done a bit of education and outreach to Medicare beneficiaries about telehealth. But again, there's an underlying assumption that the patients already kind of know how to use the technology. Let's say they have an iPhone or have access to one. Um, and as we all know, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I don't think anyone uses the flip, uh, flip phone other than the elderly population, but it's still something that um, many elderly uh, folks prefer to use a, a phone for talking on the phone as opposed to a, um, as a handheld device or an iPhone or some kind of smartphone. And so one of the things that we're, we're trying to work out is to, um, you know, see if practices can use these existing services, but if we have to do more, like, such as, um, um, uh, you know, allow for reimbursement for uh, phone visits during this time, again, um, given the gravity of the situation, we may have to do that as well. Okay. Yeah, let, let's talk a little bit more about payment and reimbursement then. So what payment requirements for Medicare telehealth services are affected by this waiver? Yeah. So practices who are interested in doing this, again, to be clear, the waiver simply lifts restrictions from billing telehealth codes that already exist. So reimbursement will be the same depending on the code. Um, and so this is already, the, the good news is that there are codes already. It's just that not everyone was allowed to bill them. So this lifts the restrictions on billing them. And now uh, a medical practice in an urban area can access the same um, reimbursement for these codes, as well as patients can then seek out telemedicine and um, and and do so in a in a fashion that didn't exist yesterday. So mm -hmm. it's it's a good thing. Okay. Now you and I were talking offline. Um, we were talking about the MGMA member community that that's a great resource for people to go to. We've already seen many healthcare professionals out there. They're asking questions. One of the key things they're asking about is billing and coding for telehealth services. So do we know how that's gonna be done? So we do. Um, and so the details were put out yesterday and then you know, MGMA staff have been working hard on this. We just released a resource available to everyone, not just MGMA members that lays out the coding requirements. And, um, we can talk a little bit more about um, where where they can get that information as well. Okay. Well, we, let's cover that in just a minute then. Um, 
I want to go to one other question that came up from the MGMA member community. It dealt with modifiers. So will there be specific mm -hmm. modifiers attached to these codes? Um, there would be existing modifiers potentially used, but um, there are some very specific instances that are laid out in existing rules that require modifiers, and we explain those in our resource, um, but nothing new related to the waiver specifically. Okay. Well, let's get to those resources then. I know that we've had our different content teams, uh, both in DC and in the Colorado office. We've been putting our heads together, putting together some resources. So can you point our listeners to places where they can get additional information? Yeah, so in addition to the new telehealth resource, which we're probably pushing out to MGMA members, but if you're not a member and you, or you know you haven't gotten it through email, um, uh, and things are moving rapidly for everyone, as you know, uh, I'd highly recommend for folks to keep out, keep an eye out for our on our COVID-19 action center. So if you go to the front page of the website, it's right there. There's a link to that as well as links to other resources like, you know, podcasts, Daniel, that you've done, which have been, you know, extremely helpful in keeping everyone up to date and what's going on in, in the last week or two. So very current information. Um, but if you go to our COVID-19 Action Center, you can link to it through the front page of the website. You can stay up to date on the latest developments impacting your practice. And the URL is simply mgma.com slash COVID. So mgma.com slash COVID. Thanks so much for that. So I think you've covered a lot of information here on those policy changes. So do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our audience about that? Yeah, I, I just want to again express that I know this is a stressful time for everyone in the healthcare community. And But from MGMA's perspective, I just want to say we've been so impressed with our members, their response to this unprecedented public health emergency. And you know our role is to con continue to do what we can to help practices get through this trying time. And we're here for practices. We have resources, uh, you know, the MGMA e-groups where um, members can log on and share best practices and share ideas and how they're coping with with the challenges unique to their specialty or unique to their situation or unique to their geography. Those are up and running, and we have hundreds of posts going back and forth uh, on a daily basis where uh, folks who are running medical practices or physicians and others who are keenly aware of the challenges here can share, um, share their ideas, share what they're doing. So uh, I think those are incredibly valuable resources. But again, just please reach out to us if you have any questions that we can answer. We want to make you know, your lives a little easier out there. Uh, and I just want to thank you for those who are listening and doing their part to combat this coronavirus. And I hope everyone keeps keep safe and keep their uh, their staff and patients safe. All right. Well, Anders, thanks so much for hopping on here in such short notice and providing these insights for us. Happy to. Thank you. Also here today to discuss the importance and best practices of telehealth as it relates to COVID-19 or Christian Malaster and Kathy Latender with Ingenium Digital Health. Christian, Kathy, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks, Daniel. All right, Kathy, I'm going to start with you. Uh, telehealth is just a growing aspect of healthcare under any conditions, normal conditions, but 
it seems like in these critical times that we're dealing with right now with the COVID-19 outbreak, that it's especially important. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Sure. So one of the things that we're really seeing and why we're really excited to be on this call with you is we feel, as you're hearing over and over from government officials, that the key is flattening this pandemic curve and telehealth can play a role in that. Yeah, you're talking with providers every day and you're getting feedback from them on what their pain points are or even what their understanding of telehealth is. What is the biggest misunderstanding or the biggest misinformation that's out there about what telehealth really is? Um, I don't think it's so much of a misunderstanding. We've been um, trying to convince uh, many providers to embrace telehealth and telemedicine because especially over the last five, six years, uh, the technology really has been stable and there has been a lot of hesitancy. Now that providers see um, a, a benefit, a really strong benefit for uh, patients to not exposing them to the risks um, when, when leaving their home, as well as a benefit to them of not exposing themselves uh, to the patients so they can continue to be there for the rest of the patients. Uh, now that motivation is out there, um, but it's it's uh, simplified as to, okay, uh, just give me the video system and I click a button and then I talk to them. And, and that's telemedicine. And uh, I actually, this is exactly the experience that I want providers to have. <laughs> I want them to sit down, click on a button and the patient is there, well prepared, and you can just uh, do your care visit. Um, but that takes a lot of effort uh, uh, upfront. And also we need to make sure that it's legal. Um, we need to make sure um, that uh, down the road, not these days, but down the road, it's reimbursable so that it's financially sustainable. And those are the things that providers are not thinking about. And frankly, in my opinion, should not be thinking about. That's where uh, individuals like us and the administrators um, and the operational folks um, need to make sure that we have those systems in place so that providers can really focus on what they do best and that is to provide care, to diagnose, and to treat patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Christian, a major part of that right now is pre-screening. We're trying, you know, the healthcare community is doing their best to keep the well patients and the, the sick patients, you know, apart from one another and right. do a great job of pre-screening. Um, but give us an idea then, you can talk about pre-screening or give us an idea of what else needs to be taking place right now as far as this remote health, if we want to call it that, or telehealth, if it's already in place um, at practices, what do they need to achieve and be able to do? Right. And so in, 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 in this stage that we're in right now, it's, it's all about, in my opinion, of relieving pressure. Um, um, it's, it's about the idea that when, uh, uh, that where, where's the volume coming in, right? And, and where's the anxiety being created, especially from externally? Um, is it people calling in because they are, they're, they're worried about having COVID-19 or having had exposure and need to be tested? Or is it patients who are just wanna continue with their normal uh, chronic care management? Or is it patients that have now a, uh, a, 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 a quote-unquote normal <laughs> physiological illness um, 
And so it's, it's really this, uh, the mindset where technology and the workflows really can help is in the area of triage. Um, and, and we have great technology available that is very reliable, um, which is the, the telephone. Um, a lot of the triage is not about reimbursable care or about diagnosis. It's about making sure that we put um, each caller, each patient, each life into the right channel to get them the most adequate care um, that, that we can. And so um, we've developed kind of this model. Uh, think about the three modes of care. It's triage, it's diagnosis, and it's treatment. And right now the focus these weeks needs to be on setting up remote care processes for triage. Um, and then uh, also looking at uh, 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 processes for remote treatment. Uh, continuing prescriptions, continuing, um, I don't know, physical exercise, uh, depending on, again, which specialty you're in. And, and then also a diagnosis is one of the more trickier ones to do remotely, but a lot of specialties have moved to test-based diagnosis, meaning that you go off blood tests and of uh, other tests. And so um, those are the different things that people need to think ahead. But the focus right now needs to be on taking the pressure off the system of getting started on the right foot and defining the workflows that support remote triage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing you mentioned there that I want to ask you is about reimbursement. In your workshops, in communicating with providers, are they asking you how do we even code uh, for this remote health and these this different these telehealth services, do they have that side of it figured out or are they looking for answers on how to do that? Um, well, those used to be the questions we've been getting is, okay, how do I code it? What's the location? What's what's the modifier or what are the various things? Uh, these days, especially given the uh, communication that's being sent out by, by the president uh, with regards to telemedicine being reimbursed by, by Medicare and, and Medicaid, um, People are just saying, okay, we can do it now. Um, so when can we get started? I, that's 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 how, what I opened my inbox to this morning when I came in, uh, a behavioral health provider saying, well, the president said uh, uh, telemedicine will be paid for. Um, uh, where do I log on? <laughs> um, uh, the reality is, yeah, the, the reality is that um, it's not as simple. I'm working with an, uh, an FQHC, and there's limitations that have not been lifted. Um, there is still payers, commercial payers out there that are not paying for telemedicine and, and on the state level, it's really still up to the states to decide on whether it is reimbursable. And then it's really up to the billing departments to really figure out for each payer to identify what are the locations or the modifiers that are, need to be put in. And those are training materials that can these days be relatively easily be obtained. And again, I mean, as a healthcare administrator myself for my whole career, I know, you know, in a command center, in a crisis um, mode, you know, uh, uh, reimbursement is, is not the top of mind, right? It is patient safety, staff safety, patient care. And um, I think what Christian is, is alluding to is it is getting confusing because literally daily and hourly, rules and regulations and shifts are coming out and 
you know, medical practice administrators, it, it's hard to keep up with what, like, what is allowed right now. And so I think this is what we're uh, grappling with and uh, more clarity will come in the coming weeks. Um, but in my, uh, my opinion, it's do the right thing for patient safety, for your community, for your providers, and then let's quickly figure out how to not go out of business um, in the months ahead. Sure. Kathy, following up on that, walk us through what the communication looks like then between a practice and a patient um, and how it can help keep people safe. Sure. So one of the really important pieces is um, thinking about four patient segments. So again, we're hearing in the news, right? Use telemedicine. What we're really focused on is thinking about four distinct patient segments and how remote care telemedicine can be used effectively for four groups. First group, population one, those that are COVID-19 suspected or diagnosed. Two, those that are sick or chronically ill but not COVID related. A really good case there for using remote care to keep those chronic patients, those sick patients cared for at a distance when possible. Third really important population are healthy individuals who cannot forgo access to care. I'm thinking newborns that were born in the last days and weeks. I'm thinking pregnant moms. I'm thinking folks that have mental health issues. In this time of heightened anxiety, these three groups still need ready access to care. Not all of it can be done outside of an office, but really think through if and how it is clinically appropriate to use remote care to continue to create access for those groups. The fourth population that we really believe um, is essential and will become more essential in the coming weeks are the healthcare workers. And let's come back to that group in a couple minutes. Okay. Um, Christian, I want to turn to you now. At MGMA, we're already hearing from practices. They're being overwhelmed by a surge in calls. Um, it is, in some places, it's just a, a shutdown of the system and they can't quite handle this increase. So let's just backtrack for a minute. Let's talk about technology for a moment. Um, how does the technology handle this massive increase on systems? How do they make it work? Yes, and that's a very good point. Uh, um, I've been known to say uh, for, for the past eight years that it's not about the technology, <laughs> um, but ultimately, uh, and, and I could make that statement because the technology had become so reliable, so ubiquitous, so user-friendly, that really um, worrying about the technology or focusing on the technology was uh, no longer um, where we needed to spend our energy. But you're absolutely right. Um, uh, we have now, um, I think, the majority of our population uh, staying at home, working from home. 
Um, a lot of these uh, meetings and calls are happening online. They're happening in uh, video meetings. And so, and then we have entered uh, the streaming age of entertainment. And so if you have a family of four and, and uh, two, two children staying at home, streaming or online gaming um, and mom and dad working from home, um, that can be very taxing for a neighborhood that was never designed uh, to um, support that amount of bandwidth. Um, and so the solution here lies again in the workflows and in having a triage mindset. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting that the the word triage is about a hundred years old. It was uh, first used during World War One, when the nurses on the battlefield were uh, faced with the challenging decision of how to uh, assign the injured soldiers uh, to the various uh, beds or surgical suites that they had um, set up uh, on on the battlefield. And uh, obviously, it was an easy decision to decide between a lightly injured and a severely injured soldier. It was much more difficult to decide between a severe, two severely injured soldiers to make the judgment call as to which one to uh, operate on or which one to care for and which one um, not to care for. But that's where the triage really came about. Fortunately, we are not faced with the, those uh, dire decisions at this point in time. But we need to take a look at the bigger picture and really um, take a step back. And a lot of people, uh, and I'm on site with a client right now, are heads down in the weeds, um, just reacting to the emails and, and trying to, uh, to just be very being reactive. And it, and it needs a person uh, uh, in the organization as part of the team to, to take three, four, five steps back and to really look ahead. Uh, look at the bigger plan and really take a look at how can we direct that volume that's coming in uh, to the most appropriate person using the most appropriate technology. For example, using the phone, um, directing people to call. Again, those can be over, overloaded, but I think that technology has been around way longer than video conferencing technology. And so it can be scaled up. Um, a little bit more quickly, uh, directing people to websites, uh, um, asking them to do uh, uh, certain things um, that, that take that pressure off. Um, but really, yes, taking a look at where the pressure is coming from and looking for ways to redirect them, again, using the technology um, while we're, um, again, flattening the curve, uh, in this case as well, of the demand uh, on our bandwidth and our uh, internet or communications technology, um, uh, uh, yeah, the demand for that. Yeah, an, an article that I ran across, it was published um, by CNBC on March 16th. It said that wait times have absolutely skyrocketed in normal conditions. It said the wait times at some health systems are usually five to 10 minutes, somewhere in that range. Now they're over an hour and that's resulting in some real problems that have played out three different ways. Either the patient gets frustrated and they, they just hang up. And in that case, maybe they then drive into the health system and, and go see them face to face. In another case, they're just being dropped. And in a third instance, it's just a meltdown of the system. The, the systems are just being overloaded. So, what are the best practices then to make sure that those patients' needs are being met? 
Yes, um, uh, I think we can learn a lot from other service industries that have dealt with the uh, call volumes all the time. Uh, I was on the phone uh, this weekend uh, with American Airlines trying to get my mom back uh, to Germany before they closed, uh, uh, before they're closing the borders. And uh, and the system they had in place is that they I just uh, they said we're going to call you back at the number that pops up here in our call ID. Um, and would that be okay? And we'll call you back uh, 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 in over two hours is what they said. And then that's what they did. They called me back two hours and 10 minutes or so after I left the message. And so um, that works when you're trying to change your airline ticket. It does not work when you're anxious about um, a particular health issue. And, and therein lies the real uh, challenge is that we're shutting people out that need access to care now um, and how can we again quickly triage that um, there is uh, a lot of online uh, uh, systems uh, vendors that have online questionnaires uh, that are very intelligent that are learning that are driven by uh, to some extent by uh, augmented uh, intelligence um, and, and that can really help patients to walk them through so they can offload, offload their frustrations, their concerns, they can ask the questions, they can answer them. And, and then with that, they then can be given a specific number to call. But then you know if that person calls, they really have an imminent health issue that's maybe doesn't warrant a 911 or they didn't want to call 911 because they didn't want to be taken into the emergency room either. So uh, I think that's where technology actually can help to uh, ease the demand on technology, but that requires taking five steps back, looking at how can we triage it? What, what is the data telling us? Let the data drive the solution, let the data drive um, how we can achieve that. And, and that I think is what organizations very, very quickly need to shift towards to, in a, to, to a, a call on, 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 on a team or to call on a person to have uh, that continued perspective. Um, which I know that Kathy, for example, in crisis situations in, in her role as a hospital administrator has played. Yeah, it's interesting. In the last uh, several days, I, I noticed it slowly, but um, all of a sudden I realized I, um, although I am a consultant, had moved into hospital administrator mode in the aftermath of 9-11 and in the um, days uh, following Hurricane Irene hitting here in Vermont, um, my role in the command centers that we stood up were to be uh, the planner, scanning the environment, looking for internal and external information uh, to determine where we needed to formulate some tactics or actions, and then teeing those up to the other people around me in the command center, and then quickly mobilizing uh, teams, physicians, nurses, staff, redirecting. Um, and in the last, I would say, five days, that is the role that I've uh, stepped into uh, with my colleagues at Ingenium and my colleagues at Healthcare Shapers, saying, what's going on? How can we step into the void right now and uh, try to uh, quickly get guidance out there to all of these folks who are... Um, actively planning and preparing and just don't have the time to absorb all the information. Uh, so really how can we synthesize it into these short conversations like we're having today 
um, to, uh, to try to reduce the overwhelm and the just influx of information. Mm -hmm. Have you had conversations about elective surgeries and elective procedures, things of that nature that maybe, you know, it might be a knee that's really bugging you, but we're going to have to put that on hold. Are you having those kind of conversations yet? Yeah, yeah. K actually came up. Uh, one of our advisors is in, in the New York City area, and, and most of her clients are uh, group practices and, and surgical practices. And that's what she had been uh, approached with, is that a lot of these uh, surgical centers are, are, are facing that uh, a lot of the elective surgeries um, have been uh, canceled by the patients. And, and also, I, uh, she made a comment, which I haven't researched yet, um, that there are uh, that that uh, some of the insurers may may just decide to uh, uh, no longer pre-authorize uh, el um, uh, elective surgeries or those kind of surgeries that can be put off just in order to free up some of the funds uh, to to reimburse for the care that is that is needed at this point in time. Um, and so that, uh, in a sense, it's good because it frees up healthcare capacity and with remote care capabilities and with actually. Uh, also, cross-state telemedicine licensing restrictions being lifted uh, currently on a state-by-state -state basis. Um, we will have additional healthcare providers uh, available to jump in as more and more healthcare workers are staying uh, at, at, at home. Yeah, I think that, yeah, if you don't mind, I don't, I'm going to jump in there, Daniel, and just talk about for a minute that fourth population mm -hmm. where um, we're really thinking that remote care can play a huge role. Go right ahead, Kathy. So as, as medical practices, we can't predict yet in parts of the country who's going to uh, be quarantined, who's needing to self-isolate, who may need to be a caregiver uh, part-time at home and part-time in the workplace. So what we're trying to help people to think about in advance is how do we use remote care for some portion of our workforce, our staff, our physicians, our advanced practice providers who are going to be home. Uh, some of the estimates are suggesting 20 to 40% of our healthcare workers are going to be home. But some of them will still be able to contribute in the workflows and the care delivery process if we're prepared. If we can begin to think about remote care possibilities, beginning to prepare to have that capability in place and then deploy it to the people that are then at home. The tricky part is we don't know who those will be but we can begin to prepare now. And I think that is one of the key groups that we need to be, um, as medical practice practices, be planning for now. How do we scale up remote care so that we don't lose 20 to 40% of our workforce in the coming weeks? Mm -hmm. And we've been talking about uh, telemedicine, how it can be best addressed right now, but how do we quickly scale the services that we already have in place? Yes, I want to distinguish two scenarios here. One being um, that uh, uh, it can be the uh, that you have a telemedicine service provider that you've engaged, meaning you've outsourced um, 
uh, your telemedicine service to uh, a, a company that provides the physicians and the resources and serves your patients. And the obvious solution there is, and that's what we've been seeing, is, is to just ask those service providers if they can um, uh, A, uh, deploy and, and all of them have uh, tools for specific screening um, of COVID-19 and, and to deal uh, with those call volumes there. And, and if a health system, if, if, if a large clinic is experiencing a lot of volumes around uh, COVID-19 screening, um, your best solution actually may be to, to outsource that to a service uh, a provider, not for caring your, for your existing patients with their illnesses uh, to, or, or to just prevent them from coming in. Um, and so that's, that's one way how you can scale it if the service provider is able to, um, to, to meet the increasing demand. And I think that's what we're seeing right now that, that, is, that is difficult, uh, especially during these early days. Um, the second aspect is that if an organization has already existing telemedicine technology um, that is deployed, if so, if, if a practice has already um, launched telemedicine, uh, we talked to a, a pediatric uh, a group um, with uh, uh, 18 different locations and one physician was doing early morning telemedicine. Um, and so that was great is uh, that physician was able to train and, uh, and, and, and brief of other providers who were interested. They're able to expand the, the uh, hours. Um, and I'm going to go back to my earlier point. It's about uh, where, where's, where's the pressure coming from? Um, uh, where do you need to achieve scalability? And then the, the secret to scalability is simplicity. And it's really asking the question, what's the simplest thing that could possibly work? How can we um, have uh, uh, very, very quick uh, visits? Uh, one vendor that published some data talked about an average connection time on video of 89 seconds. Um, that uh, was preceded by a, a, uh, an online questionnaire that uh, patients went through uh, to really be triaged and to collect all the relevant information. And so um, that was then presented to the provider and then the provider has uh, some follow-up questions, some fact-checking, and then determines the next best action. And so um, if you imagine that it takes two minutes for a provider to see one patient, um, then you really have great scalability. Um, and yes, if you have access to a system that has those features, then that's how you can uh, very uh, quickly scale. But the other thing um, in terms of scalability, um, many organizations, many medical practices are using telemedicine for particular patient populations, um, right? They're using it for behavioral health. They're using it for um, school-based health. They're using it for uh, pediatric before hours care. So it's about saying, uh, what are the next populations that we wanna to scale to? What's the best workflow for that population? And then asking the question, does our current technology enable us to do that? Or do we need to augment that in some way? Mm -hmm. it, final thoughts then, what would you like to share with our audience about the best practice they can take in using telehealth to provide safe and effective care for their patients? So let me start. Three points. Um, as you rapidly stand up and expand 
your remote care capabilities in this crisis, uh, the focus needs to be on managing risk, patient risk, staff risk, provider risk, community risk. So the mindset of um, managing risk for safe and effective care. Second, I think it's critical in standing up a new service offering quickly to monitor it, evaluate it, and improve it. Uh, it's not a one-time event, but it is a rapid shift for many physicians, many clinicians, many practices, and many patients to be delivering and receiving care in this way. So monitor it, improve it in the days, weeks, and the year ahead. It's not a one-time event. Yes, from my perspective, and uh, I'm an engineer by training, and I love processes. And, and so the process that I see, which I actually mapped out, can, can be easily done in, in just a few hours of, of time. It takes time to get people together. But the first is let's focus on what is the problem we're trying to solve. Is it triage for COVID, suspected COVID-19? Is it uh, the, the care of of, uh, mental health, uh, uh, behavioral health patients. Uh, first the focus, then the workflows. What is the patient experience going to look like? What, is, what should the physician experience, the provider experience look like? How do we schedule appointments and what do we do after the visit? Next then, okay, what technology options do we have available? Do we use a, a, a HIPAA compliant standard video system? Do we use a telemedicine solution that we already have in-house? What is the best solution that helps us to implement that workflow that for this situation we have designed? And in parallel, um, uh, really look at the legality and also uh, the, the reimbursement side, although the legality really uh, trumps everything. And that's with regards to licensing, uh, with regards to consent, uh, all these things that still apply. Um, even in the wake of all those waivers that are occurring. And then after that, really do some, uh, do just-in-time training and take copious notes during the training sessions, uh, really have a hands-on approach during the initial rollout and, uh, and then develop your training materials um, on an ongoing basis so that you can scale it up across uh, your workforce and, and then keep expanding uh, uh, on it and keep it growing. But start start with this uh, uh, narrow, narrow focus and last but not least but very importantly uh, do not forget to start collecting quality metrics um, it's uh, easy to overlook and it, and it may not seem um, uh, prudent right now to focus our energies on that but very quickly uh, we're going to be held to account and there's going to be more scrutiny on the way that uh, remote care uh, services are being delivered and we got to make sure that everybody gets the message with regards to the policies that still apply to, to telemedicine. All right. Well, Christian, Kathy, th this has been enlightening. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts, your ideas on telehealth. Um, thanks so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, very happy to do so. Um, was uh, uh, exciting to share this knowledge here um, with, with the commun healthcare community at large and we wish really everybody uh, Godspeed and, um, and, and, and good applications of all the knowledge that is out there. That's going to do it for this special episode of the Insights Podcast. 
Thanks to our guest, Anders Gilberg, Christian Malaster, and Kathy Latender. Keep an eye out for more in this series as we talk with healthcare professionals to help guide you and your practice through these difficult times. To keep up with the latest, be sure to visit mgma.com slash COVID. You can also connect with fellow members and healthcare peers at community.mgma.com. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights Podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com membership. Thanks. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for, so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions. Visit mgma.com analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations. Again, visit mgma.com analytics today.